0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. It's a treat to be here in White House and to see what god is doing here it's been one of the great things about bethel the last few years has been kind of the birth of this campus the launching some of you coming from our south campus but many of you knew so if i don't know you if i've never been introduced please uh, grab me afterwards if i haven't so offended you by the sermon that you're willing to talk to me Uh, i'd love to introduce myself and say hello um we're going to do something a little different today for a sermon or maybe mark does this all the time i really don't know we're going to talk about tacos is that different yeah i think that's that's probably different um okay i need to do a quick poll and this poll will decide whether or not this sermon is like awful or just not great uh the the question is uh who in this room shane you better be careful you just raised your hand uh who in this room doesn't like tacos Oh, there's actually two of you. I'm sorry. You're not going to like this sermon. Oh, three, three or four, mostly kids. You'll, maybe you'll grow into liking tacos like the rest of us adults, um, but you're probably not going to... So four of you are not going to get this illustration and maybe this sermon, which is not great. But um, so one of the things I do when I'm not at Bethel is I serve on the school board of Tyler ISD. And so we had a rough meeting a, a month ago, and a guy from church texted me, said hey, don't try and make everyone happy tonight. Remember, you're not a taco. And I thought, okay, well, I'm not a taco, and I didn't make everyone happy. Probably won't make everyone happy here today, proving his point. But what is it that is so great about tacos? Why did Americans eat 4.5 billion tacos last year alone? That is, if you were to waste these tacos and stretch them end to end to end, that's 499,000 miles of tacos, which would take you from Tyler, Texas to the moon and back, It's a lot of tacos, if it's 775 million pounds of tacos, which is two Empire State buildings full of tacos, so we eat a lot of tacos in America. Who's seen the movie Forrest Gump? You know the scene where Bubba lists off all the ways he likes shrimp? I'm about to list off all the ways I like tacos. I like breakfast tacos with chorizo, with bacon, sometimes with potatoes. uh, With sausage, I like brisket tacos. I like chicken and beef. Uh, And one of the great things about tacos is there are some things that people in their right mind would not eat normally by themselves, But you stick it in a taco, you put a little bit of salsa and a little bit of cheese on it, and all of a sudden you can eat those things. But I think one of the reasons why I like tacos is because you can taste all the ingredients in a taco. So you take a bite and you're like, oh yeah, there's the chicken, there's the cheese, there's the salsa. And so, but it forms, in the midst of being able to taste all these different things, it forms something unique. It forms a taco which is almost magic in the way this new taste comes about. So I think that's one of the things that's great about tacos. You eat it, you taste all the individual ingredients, and yet together it makes something new and better. If you don't believe me, let's do it the opposite way. Okay. So here's a picture of four tacos. These are crispy beef tacos from Dairy Queen. I don't recommend the tacos at Dairy Queen, but I'm cheap. And I wasn't going to eat these. You'll see what I do with them in just just a second. So this is a taco, right? It's got all the ingredients of a taco. It has cheese. It has lettuce. It has tomatoes. It's got some salsa. There's a meat-like substance buried down in there that I think has some meat in it. Uh, But you've got the diversity of ingredients all coming together to make this taco. But what would happen if you took those tacos and threw them in a Vitamix and ground them up? What would it look like if you had total taco unity and no diversity? Would it still be an awesome taco experience? This is what it would look like. The answer is, of course not. You want to know what this is? This is taco baby food, for those of you with little ones. I wouldn't try it. it, So you walk into the kitchen, it still smells like tacos are in the kitchen, and then you find this pile of brown stuff, and you're like, oh, that's You taste it it tastes kind of like a taco but is not nearly as awesome as a normal taco so the question that this picture raises is how much diversity of ingredients of a taco can exist and still be unified into a glorious taco so how much diversity can you have and still be unified How much unity can you have and still reflect the full beauty of diversity? Which I think is an important question today as our country wrestles with increasing division and polarization, really in almost every way we can imagine. We see it uh, on TV. We see it in our news choices. We have so many different options for news. You can find a news channel where they're going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. They're going to agree with you almost all the time. They might look like you. You can select your news source based off of your worldview. It shows up in political issues, issues like immigration, um, symbolic issues like school names and statues. They all raise these questions of unity and diversity. You know, another word for division or polarization that's even harder to talk about is segregation. We see that actually on the increase in our society, generally not forced segregation, but the voluntary type. We see it in our neighborhoods, sometimes even in our towns that are largely homogenous based off of economics. We see it in our schools, we see it in our friendships, and unfortunately we even see it in our churches. It's the way of the world. Find folks just like us, huddle up, and be united in our similarity. Our passage today is Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18. You can click there or turn there. And it paints a very different picture of the radical, countercultural reconciliation that cuts across every line that we could imagine. And it is so beautiful that it is worth the death of Christ. It is so beautiful that it will actually continue into eternity. And My prayer is that somehow today, despite my weakness and inability, that God's Spirit would show us the beauty of unity in the midst of diversity that we could see the beauty that still remains in the midst of diversity. So as you're turning to Ephesians 2, I'll set just a little bit of context. The letter was written by the Apostle Paul, as you probably know, to the church in Ephesus around 60 AD. He writes the letter uh, to the church in Ephesus from prison. And based off what we know in the book of Acts, he's generally writing to guard, tell them to guard against false teaching. But there's also another theme in this book, which is the theme of love. We see at the very beginning of the book, starting in chapter 1, verse 4, where we see that the love for us is what God's motive was in reaching out to save us. We see it in chapter 2, verse 4, that His great love for us existed even while we were dead in our sin. And then what is probably our collective favorite verse in the Bible Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So then, leading up to our passage today, it begins the examination of what the effects or the implications of God's saving grace, His love towards us are. So here's how we'll spend our time. I'm going to read the passage, we'll divide the passage into three sections Verses 11 and 12 are divinely divided, 13 through 17 are divinely united, and then verse 18 is divinely empowered. But before we get started, I want to give you two warnings. The first is that when I was in seminary, I wrote a 24-page single-space paper on this passage, which is four times, four or five times longer than Mark's typical sermon. And it's certainly more boring than Mark's sermons, uh, but it also means that I have more to say about this passage than you possibly even have time or care to hear about. The second warning, though, is that we're going to talk about something today that is very hard for us to talk about in the church. Not giving, that's also hard, but probably harder than that would be the issue of race. So here's my prayer. As my words are true to God's, I pray that the Spirit of God would work in our hearts to understand and to see that truth. And to the extent that my words stray or become unnecessarily offensive, I pray that they would be forgotten and that they would not detract from the truth that's contained in this passage. So let's read Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, all the way through verse 18. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we have access in one Spirit to the Father. So our first section, verses 11 and 12, is divinely divided. So who is divided? Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. So it's the Gentiles, which is everyone in the world who is not Jewish. In fact, the word here translated as Gentile is ethne in Greek. It's where we get the English word ethnic or ethnicity. It's translated almost everywhere else in Scripture as the nation or peoples. It's the same word used in the Great Commission in Matthew 28:19 where Jesus says, "Go and make disciples of all nations." These same non-Jews are also called the uncircumcision in our passage here since the mark of Jewishness from the very beginning since Abraham and was a specific sign of God's covenant with him had been circumcision. And Paul points out that physical circumcision is a human work, not a divine work. In fact, the Greek word here is the same one that describes inferiority of idols, other man-made religious symbols, even used to describe the temple in Jerusalem. All man-made, which is contrasted with the true spiritual actions that God does. Just as Paul wrote a few verses earlier, that we are saved not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not human action or work, it's not human hands that do this, it is the gift of God. And Paul's request to remember is in the present tense, which has the sense of continue to remember. Which for Paul's original Gentile readers was probably easier for them to do since they had been separated since just a few years before. But for us, growing up in Christian America 2000 years later, It's hard for us to really grasp how separate we are, we were. Although it's no less important for us to continue to remember the great thing that God has done in His redemptive work to include us into His family. But in case Paul's readers have forgotten, Paul's going to remind us of what being excluded from God's redemptive plan for 1,500 years has looked like. He's going to list five former realities for the church in Ephesus. They were, number one, they were separated from Christ or the Messiah. which is probably better translated as without Christ. Two, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, God's chosen people, His chosen nation. Three, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants that promised the future blessings to Israel through the coming of Messiah. Number four, they were hopeless. This wasn't going to get better for them. It wasn't anything they could do about it on their own. And number five, they were without God in the world, which doesn't mean that God was limited to certain parts of the earth at the time. It just means that the Gentiles did not have access to Him. So they were separated, alienated, strangers, hopeless, and blocked from God. Because as God's plan of redemption unfolded, it started with Abraham and a select line of his descendants. Although you can look back later and see that God's desire all along was for all the nations to come to him, the Jews had become so focused on their separateness, even their prideful separateness, that they were failing at their role to be priests to all the nations, to bring all the nations to their God. You know, it's hard for us to fully understand the depth of separation between Jew and Gentile. As I thought about them recognizing they're divided by religious, cultural, social, racial, political, and even linguistic barriers, the closest thing I could come up with, if you can imagine this, would be if the house next door to you sells and your new neighbor who comes in is an Al-Qaeda fighter from Yemen. He's a different religion, a different language, different cultural customs. He has dark brown skin. He speaks Arabic, which most of us don't understand. Oil and water that would not mix. As different and as excluded as we can possibly be imagine divinely divided now look at verse 13 but now in christ jesus but now in christ jesus what was once divinely divided is now divinely united and as completely as jew and gentile were separated they are now united divinely But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, this isn't a human action. This isn't Jews and Gentiles getting together and decided, you know, we need to figure out a way to get along. This is divine action. The eternal Son of God stepping out of glory into His creation, born as a man, lives a life without sin, comes to a cross and is crucified, not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. And the benefit of this divine action is that we are brought near. Again, it's the passive voice. It's something that's done to us. We're no longer separated, no longer alienated, no longer strangers, no longer blocked from God, no longer without hope. So how does something like that happen? The text says it's the cross, specifically the blood of the cross, the blood of Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man. So this inclusion, this unity, the reconciliation that is possible, there seems to be a focus here in this passage on bringing the outsider in, of reconciling Gentiles to the Jews, or better, all the nations reconciling them to god and to jews the people of god this unity comes at great cost the blood of the son the life of jesus and while we often reflect on the great price paid for our individual salvation of us being reconciled to god and we respond in gratitude appropriately this passage points out One of the results accomplished by Jesus on the cross at great cost is the reconciliation of all races to Him, and as a result, reconciling all the races to each other. You know, as Americans, we have a worldview that tends to emphasize the individual. We believe in free will and personal responsibility, liberty, lifting ourselves up by our bootstraps. And that also impacts our view of salvation. We use language like we make a personal decision as salvation as exclusively individual or personal, which it is, but that same focus on the individual can cause us to miss out on what God is doing collectively. His redemptive plan is not just for individuals, it's for peoples. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 19, that it is for all of creation. Reading from there. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this isn't just peaceful coexistence, or indifference, it's divine unity. Verse 14 and 15, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. This means that Jesus not only did something that brought peace, He is peace Himself for us. He is the source of our peace. And by meeting the just requirements of the law, by remaining sinless until He died, He fulfilled the law which nullified it, which rendered it powerless. It's Probably a better translation than abolished. And by nullifying the law, He removed the divine requirements that previously had separated Jews from the rest of the nations. But couldn't you read in verse 14 where it says He made us both one or in verse 15 where He says that He has created us one new man in place of the two and read that racial differences have been wiped out, that we shouldn't see race, shouldn't care about race. And I don't think that's the point of this passage for two reasons. The first is, that Paul is referring to the church here. He's using uh, the body as a metaphor to describe the church. He's not referring to a new type of raceless human being. The second is elsewhere in Scripture, we see race continuing even into the eternal state. So, for example, take a look at Revelation 7, verse 9. This is John, the author of Revelation, describing heaven. And he says after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands So in a place where there is no sin where they purely and unashamedly and honestly worship the lamb John, describing what he saw with his eyes, still saw race. He still hears different languages, and he recognizes different ethnicities. In a time and place not impacted by sin, truly grasping the glory of the Lamb, responding in authentic worship. And the way John describes the beauty of this scene is in two ways. The first is its size, a multitude too great to count, and the second is diversity every nation every tribe every people every language perfectly united in their worship of the lamb the diversity of the worshipers is what strikes john and it should strike us because we hardly ever see that you know we don't say the lord's prayer in corporate worship very often But the second verse of the prayer, Matthew 6.10 says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you want to know what the will of God looks like in heaven? It's an army of true worshipers, united by faith, united in their praise, yet diverse in every way imaginable. So it's not that the racial diversity has gone away. It's that it's been transcended. The most important thing about us is not our race. It is whether we have been reconciled to God. But do we look for and expect this type of reconciliation in the church today? Let's talk about our expectations, what we would normally expect to see, when an individual responds to faith in Jesus. So, generally, we're going to ask Joe Generic Christian, what results might we expect to see on earth when someone comes to faith? And if you polled most people, you would get something that says something like, hey, they should sin less. They should do more good and do less bad. And, and certainly, we do see Scripture encouraging us to sin less. We've got all sorts of lists, for the list keepers, uh, to feel bad about themselves for all the sin that continues to happen. But if you dig a little deeper, you might hear someone say, Well, I expect to see some fruit. I expect to see some results from their salvation. Not to earn it in any way, but to show that they really are a new creation reconciled to God, which is what Paul has just finished saying. In the verse before our passage, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, which means we should do them, we should do good works. But the emphasis in our passage today is on the reconciliation of the races and peoples and the nations to God and to each other. And I think here's where our American individualism causes us to read this and skip over it in a way that's a little different. Because I don't think we bring the same expectation for the results of salvation, for that change, to include the reconciliation of races amongst fellow believers. But I believe the implication for the passage today is exactly that. So take Bethel, for example. Obviously, we have, I think we have more than, more than one race represented here today but just barely which is not unusual for churches in tyler and not unusual for churches in america you know it hasn't always been like that it's easy for us to look around today and think that what is today has always been like that 200 years ago we moved from segregated pews to segregated churches there's a saying you might have heard that sunday mornings are the most segregated hours of the week And when I was researching that phrase, it turns out, um, some of you might already know, that Martin Luther King said that in 1963, and it's still true today. LifeWay Research did a survey of American churchgoers back in 2015 and found that on average, 80% of individual church attendees were from the same race. And worse, we're pretty much okay with that. Less than half... 40% felt their church needed to become more diverse. And even worse, 33% were strongly opposed to becoming more diverse. And the trend is even worse among evangelicals and whites, which is most of us. 71% of evangelicals say their church is diverse enough while whites, 37%, are least likely to say their church should become more diverse. African-Americans, 51%, Hispanic-Americans, 47%, were more likely to say their church needs to be more diverse. So how do you feel about that question? Should Bethel be more diverse? Should Bethel even care about this? Is Bethel diverse enough? And for me, the answer is no. We aren't diverse enough. But if we are really divinely united, if one of the effects of the cross is this radical reconciliation of all the races amongst believers, why are we still so separated on a Sunday? I'll give you three reasons. The first is cultural. The cultural explanation is what I call the noceums, which usually are really annoying bugs that you can't see. But in this case, it's people who say things like this. I've said these things. Maybe you've said these things too. I really don't see race anymore. I'm colorblind when it comes to race. You know, race really isn't an issue for me which is what you usually hear from the majority race, at least here in America. As an aside, you know, one of the funny things about going to visit our churches in Sierra Leone, which is Western Africa, is they don't have the same history, they don't have the same hang-ups about race that we do. And when you head outside of Freetown, out into the villages, you know what happens? People stop, they look at you, and they point, and they go, Habatu, 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 which means white man, because obviously you're white and obviously they're black and they're not hung up about it. But go to the grocery store and have your little child start pointing out all the people who are of a different color and see how quickly you shush them. It's the obvious difference. and Of course, they see it, yet we've been culturally conditioned to not see it. So let me put it this way. If you don't see race, you're missing out. To not see race is to minimize or ignore the creativity of our Creator. In the same way, we marvel and admire the different ways that God can paint a sunset seemingly different every single night. In the same way, He uniquely sculpts and chisels mountain ranges or he can wind a stream perfectly into a beautiful forest, we should marvel at the beauty of the created races. In the same way, not to see race is not to see the full scope and power and beauty of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's like the difference between real tacos and baby food tacos. One is beautiful and makes you happy, the other doesn't. So that's the cultural explanation. We've been conditioned by our culture to pretend to not see race. Now here's the practical explanation for why we don't see more diversity at church. Every survey about church growth that you ever read says the number one reason people come to church is because a friend invites them. That may be your story here. You were here today uh, because someone you knew said, hey, I go to church in White House, you should come visit it with me. So, I honestly believe that one reason our church is overwhelmingly white is that most of us don't have friends from other races. We might have acquaintances, Someone we went to school with 20 or for some of us 30, 40 years ago. Maybe it's somebody we work with. Or maybe there's a kid on one of our kids' sports teams. Or maybe you're just Facebook friends with them. But they're that kind of Facebook friends where sometimes you look at it and you're like, how do I even know this person? How did I become friends with them? I don't know who they are. But are they the kind of friends you can have over for dinner? Are they the kind of friends that you would call when you need help? Do you know them well enough to have a spiritual conversation with them and actually invite them to church? I believe we're a white church because we largely don't have friends from other races, which is kind of the practical reason. So, culturally, we've been conditioned not to see race. Practically, we don't have many friends from other races. Third reason theological go back to another worship scene in heaven this time revelation 5 verses 9 and 10 where the worshipers say worthy are you to take the scroll they're talking to jesus and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransom people for god from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests To our God. So that same precious blood in our passage that we read about today ransomed all these different people for God so that all these different kinds of people could be priests to God. So if all the nations were ransomed for God, and if the plan of God all along was to reconcile all of these peoples, all these nations to Himself... And our passage today says that he accomplished that at the cross, and that plan persists into eternity. Then, who do we know who above everything desires to oppose the plan and purposes of God? Some of you weren't alive when Dana Carvey was on Saturday Night Live, but he had this character uh, called the Church Lady. And every time she said a particular word, it was really funny. And I find myself in church not being able to say that word without hearing Dana Carvey in my head. And so I'll just say it. It's Satan. That's the enemy. That's the person who opposes the purposes and the plan of God. That is the reason Bethel is so white. And it's the reason that the American church is so segregated, it's the reason the history of the American church has been on the wrong side of so many issues, so many racial issues. It's the reason the worldwide church has often acted in a way that denied the truth of the beauty of unity in the midst of racial diversity. Beyond our own sinfulness, of course, the reason is spiritual warfare which is why this issue is so hard for us in America, in this church in America, and even for us at Bethel. So what human force can prevail against that enemy? What army is strong enough? What political ideology or party is persuasive enough to convince us? What laws would be strong enough to change this type of behavior? And the answer is not one, nothing. But fortunately, the same God who has divinely united us has also divinely empowered us. Look at verse 18. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through faith in Jesus, through His blood on the cross, we are reconciled to God, reconciled to each other, And at the same time, one spirit comes to live inside us now as new creations with changed affections because we have a new heart, which changes our way of thinking and seeing because we have transformed minds from all tribes, from all people, all races, all languages, yet united in one spirit. You know, one of the great things about going on a Bethel missions trip, which you should do, or maybe, I guess, any other mission trip, but a Bethel one, is you get to see this unity of one spirit in action. It's hard when you're in one culture and stay in one culture to see this. But one of my first trips with Bethel was to Italy, which if you're going to pick a place to do a mission trip, I highly recommend Italy. Um, I've had several Sierra Leone trips to compensate for the Italy trip, Uh, but beyond the good food, the gelato, the coffee, the art, the history, the most beautiful thing I saw when I was in Italy was joining another group of believers at their church, believers from a different culture, from a different race and ethnicity who spoke a language I did not understand, and yet they worshiped the same Father that I did through their faith in Jesus. And I found my heart full of love for these people I did not even know, which I guarantee is not my natural reaction. And If you can't afford to go on an international mission trip, here's another option. Go visit a church that isn't white. Come back, but go visit a church that isn't white. We have them around here. And you'll see that we are united by the same and I'll show you a little glimpse of heaven where we can begin to see what that Revelation 7 throne room looks like, where every tribe and nation and tongue worships with one spirit, with beautiful diversity in the midst of perfect, sinless unity. You can experience that great taco